Welcome to The Natural Selection. This week's theme is forest. Welcome back to the natural selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Nick. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am Naomi. Hi guys, welcome back. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good, thank you. And yeah. Nick, would you like to tell listeners who haven't heard us before what we do here? Oh yeah, sure. Well, we're the natural selection. We're a group of taxonomists who try and bring their passion for nature into the wild. Uh, so each week we pretty much gather and have a chat about the natural world. So in the first section, we talk about nature news and interesting stuff we found from the past week. But in the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that relates to sort of the flora and fauna around the world. And this week's theme is forests. Cool. How have you guys been doing this week? Have any nice nature encounters? I'm deep in the woods with nature encounters. Um, <laughs> I've been I've been puppy sitting this week and let me tell you, they are animals. <laughs> <laughs> that tickled me. Good, good, because it's um, yeah, it's uh, I'm trying to be good humored about it. Yeah, yeah, you've got war wounds, war wounds. Yes, I have been wounded. She's just a puppy. She's learning. She doesn't know. Doesn't. Uh, Wasn't it just a full moon? Oh, yeah, it was a couple of days ago. That must be you it. Got scratched by a dog. It didn't break the skin though, so I think I think we'll be all right. I hope. Though I have seen enough Teen Wolf, the MTV high school drama, to know what to do if I do become a werewolf. Oh, cool, cool. I'm trying to think if I've seen any nature at all. If I'm being honest, Naomi. Oh, fair. I yeah, my most of my nature. I think I saw a puppy that was sheltering from the rain by standing on her owner's feet. Oh. It was very cute. She was not not pleased with the rain uh which is difficult because they live in london so <laughs> yeah where most dogs have like raincoats yeah yeah mm. <laughs> i used to uh, live with a dog who had a parker jacket that was the same color as mine so if we went out in the rain together <laughs> that's cute matching yeah. lovely so i think on that note shall we get on with the news Hello and welcome back. We are starting with the news section this week. Um, I will kick us off with some interesting news I found about sharks this week. Not usually something I talk about, but a cool article I found. So this article was uh, published in Historical Biology. It was published at the beginning of October. So this was looking at sharks. And in particular, it was looking at this one specific order of shark called the Laminate. Let me start that again. The lamniforms. So these are sharks that include well-known sharks like the great white shark and then some other kind of lesser known sharks like goblin sharks and thresher sharks. So basically this was using measurements from extant sharks, which are sharks that are still living, to look at extinct sharks and work out their estimates of body jaw size and jaw sizes from the teeth sizes. Because sharks are cartilaginous fish they don't preserve very well so the only things we get of sharks from the fossil record are teeth so they're using these teeth and then extrapolating measurements from other living sharks 
to find out sizes from them. So this is basically looking at there's some very like gigantic sharks within this group. So this paper was trying to look at why they think these sharks might be so gigantic. So one idea is that they are endotherms, uh, so they maintain a constant temperature. They're not 100% sure that this fits. It, it kind of explains it, but it doesn't really explain specifically in this group why they are so large, particularly the megalodon that is part of this group. And it's way bigger than even the, the giant, the other giant ones in the shark. It can grow up to about 14 meters long. Um, compared on, to Nick, about... can, I ask, can I ask Nick a question here? Because you mentioned they do it by the size of their tooth. And Nick, you're our resident translate back into Greek. Would megalodon mean big tooth? Wouldn't it? And then what if what is the la part of that? Oh, am I first spanner in the works? Yeah, my understanding is that it means mega tooth shark. Oh, oh. cool. So yeah, it's named after what you were saying. That's cool. Hmm. Yeah. So, but what they what they think might actually, and this is something that's unique to this group. So this group are ovoviviparous. So that means that they give birth to live young. And something that this group do is there's cannibalism within the womb. So eggs are released. And then what happens is the eggs are released at different times. So one egg is released and then it hatches and then it eats the other eggs. And, and then sometimes it also eats the other embryos or other baby sharks if the eggs hatch. Sometimes they eat it before they hatch. And in some species, they eat it after they've hatched, basically. Sorry, I can see Nick looking confused at me. So this is something that they think may have possibly driven the evolution of endothermy in this ta in this group. So potentially this is why they have such large size because of this. They're really large when they're born and they're they're basically, you know, able to survive really well once they're born because they've taken all these nutrients from their mother and from, you know, their ex-siblings, I guess. Yeah, so this might be how they get so large. For Megalodon, they think there's probably other things going on as well because they're so massive that there's probably to do with prey as well and stuff that they were able to get from prey. Mm. The title of the article was definitely pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> what was it called? The actual article was not very intense, but the I was reading a news and reviews about it. I think it was like cannibalism in the womb may have helped megalodon sharks become giants. <laughs> That's a really good title. The actual paper was much more scientific than it. Um, yeah, and so that's my news for the week. Nick, did you have, have news for us? I have news. Mine's a little bit more gentle in its persuasions, but it's no less interesting. So there's a new plant in Europe. Yes. And... <laughs> And more to boot, it is the rarest fern in Europe. And it comes from the same green isles as you do, Naomi. Woohoo! A gentleman was walking through Kalani National Park in County Kerry. And he was walking past, I think it was a stream. And he noticed a fern growing on a rock and he didn't really recognise it. So he pressed it and he sent it off to someone in the Natural History Museum, I believe in London, and uh, to analyse it. And they found something quite amazing. They found that it's a, a type of fern which is only found in sort of the cloud forests of places like Jamaica and Dominica. Wow. That's really bizarre. Wow. And you think, okay, well, human beings go between those two places, so maybe someone had dropped it off. Well, no. 
That's not the case. So this is a very difficult fern to grow. It only grows on other trees. So to drop it off somewhere wouldn't really work. Also, because it's morphologically very, very different to uh, the, the ferns living in the cloud forest, it appears it's been there for thousands of years. And it's a species called, and oh God, I'm so sorry, fernologists and fern cotton, Stenogrammatis myosoroides. Rather than growing on trees, this one has actually been growing on rocks. And it's probably a relic from a th thousand years ago when there's a very, very different uh, climate. Ireland would not have the climate we recognise today, but it probably survived from then and quietly prospered sort of right on this, uh, yeah, on the coast of Ireland, which is still one of um, Europe's last remaining bits of rainforest. So there's a bit of temperate rainforest there in County Kerry. I think I Ooh. want to interject here to tell you that ferns, for whatever reason, are so beloved that they have their own name for the people that study them. They're pteridologists. Pteridologists. Yeah. I do know that they were, Victorians were absolutely obsessed with ferns. You used to buy uh, boxes that you would put in your main room where all you would put in them is ferns and you would show your friends your ferns. What's the deal? What's with ferns? Hmm. I don't know. I suppose we sort of have odd obsessions occasionally. Like, why roses? I feel like as a culture we're quite obsessed with roses and they're perfectly perfectly cromulent flowers but i don't know why there are plenty of other very beautiful flowers but we don't they don't really have the same connotations i wonder if it's maybe the difficulty to grow as well that if these things are kind of hard to grow it's almost like a status symbol that you're kind of like showing off that you you know haven't killed this plant yet you know well isn't, isn't there that quote that if uh, if dandelions were hard to grow they would adorn every garden in england yeah but instead we kill them mm. On that lovely note, <laughs> I have some fake news for you guys today. Um, it's not fake news. It's not a. It's just not a scientific research study. Uh, but I think that those of you who have chosen to listen to the natural selection uh, may find this interesting. It's that time of year again. It's the Natural History Museum of London's Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards. And we have already a few of the photographs out. Uh, you can see them on their Instagram and website. But on Friday, October the 16th, the full exhibition will be opened. And I think that this year they're doing the award ceremony broadcast live. So you'll be able to see the award ceremony even if you can't come into the museum. And then the photographs will be online as well. So it's a really cool exhibit. I love going when I can. And it's, there are a hundred pictures in the galleries of the Natural History Museum. And they're the most beautiful photographs from the, the year in nature photography and photojournalism about the natural world. Uh, so I think it fits in really well with what we, what we do here at the Natural Selection. But rather than doing it over a podcast, it's entirely visual. I think that these photographs are chosen from over 50,000 applications people can submit their photographs from all over the world professionals and amateurs and actually my favorite part of the exhibit is the young photographer section where they have the like the photographs and then the kid's name and where they're from and their age and usually it's like oh my god what was i doing at 14. <laughs> yeah i was gonna um, say that usually that bit usually makes me feel exceptionally inadequate <laughs> yeah, yeah there's like a 14 year old with like a photograph of a jaguar you're like Right. Okay. What am I doing the with my life? Is, 
Uh, Nick, what I found out about that is every story from your childhood that you tell on this podcast is so weird. <laughs> like you're saying, like those kids, they're they're up to all sorts of things. But every time you tell a story, you're like, so anyway, I've got this hollowed out carcass of a hedgehog. <laughs> um, I I will well I will say I did get some photographs the other day from my dad who of a completely desiccated calf carcass that he found on a hike. <laughs> so yes, okay. But no, these kids, I mean, you either have the kids that are like out in the Costa Rican rainforest seeing pictures of jaguars, or they've taken the most beautiful picture of a fox in their backyard that you can imagine. And both of them, I think, are equally impressive. Um, so have a look for the kids, if for nothing else. Uh, but there are some really amazing stories and, and images that you can see there as well. And um, just as a little teaser... One of my favorite photographs that's been shown so far is on the, you can see on the Natural History Museum website and on their Instagram. And it's a photograph of a tyra, which is a kind of mammal that climbs trees in Costa Rica, the rainforest, like we just mentioned. So have a look. See that one. It's pretty cool. It's by Max Waugh. And take a look at some of the other things when they come out next week. I often check them out each year. Nick, do you have a favorite one from years past? Good question. The first thing that comes to mind are sad ones, but I think that's like the nature of how memory works. But in terms of beautiful photographs, yeah, I think there was one from last year's exhibition that was a, a an American bison in snow, and it looked like mm-hmm. you couldn't really, it was just too, super textural, like it was just like stripes. And then once you looked at it for long enough, you could see that, oh, there's a bison there. That moment of surprise I really like. Actually, gonna say that one. That one's really beautiful. Um, there's mm. also a really. It was the People's Choice winner, so it wasn't actually in the exhibition itself, but it was the People's Choice winner, and it was two mice fighting in the London Underground Station. And I think mm-hmm. actually it got a lot of notoriety online, so I think a lot it was kind of shared a lot by people. But yeah, like it kind of looks like they were having like a little fist fight. These two mice. They're very anthropomorphized, I think, in, in the photo. It's funny looking. I quite liked there was a seahorse uh, which was holding on to a, an earbud or a Q-tip. That's one of the ones that I was remembering, Nick, that was kind of sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a bit sad, but I thought it was, yeah, it was quite poignant. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's a, it has a really strong narrative. The whole thing is contained in that. A picture can tell a thousand words, as they say. Mm. Indeed, that's great. Really cool news this week, guys. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of our news section. Join us after this short break where we'll be back with our theme, which this week is forests. Hello, listeners. This is the part of the show where I can tell if the others have listened to this week's podcast. So this is the better looking Nick here to tell you that geese are so much cooler than bison. But I'm also here to tell you about our website, thenaturalselection.net. Here you can find blogs, vlogs and just more information about us. We also have links to our Facebook page, where we always love to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions, questions, or just want to contact us, please do. And if you enjoy what we do, please like, share, subscribe, and wherever you find us, it would really help us out. Anywho, I believe you were trying to listen to a podcast, so I'll let you get on. Ta-ra! Hello, and welcome back. We are back with our theme this week, which is forest. So I'm going to kick us off this week, actually. And in kind of something that I often do, I wanted to look up what the oldest or earliest forest was. 
So this is pretty cool because it kind of made me realize, actually, the definition of trees and forests is actually quite vague in a way. I think they're words that we kind of use in common speech, but there's not necessarily actually like a scientific definition to these things. They're just sort of words that we use to kind of group lots of diverse things together. Plants would have originally kind of been algae in shallow seas and plants moved onto land maybe about 500 million years ago. But it was sort of a, a bit of a struggle for early plants because they hadn't quite figured out a way to get nutrients and also not to dry out. So in the mid-Devonian, we would have found tr tree-like plants beginning to appear. Uh, so before this, everything would have been quite small, kind of mosses, things like that. Yeah, so about 390 million years ago, we would have gotten tree-like plants. And then these things would have risen to dominance through the Carboniferous, so 360 to 300 million years ago. And actually, the Carboniferous is named for these early forests. Do you guys know the word origin of Carboniferous? Can you work it out? I can. Yes. It's from uh, carburetors, which are obviously a part of a car. <laughs> Oh, Nick, my guess, well, could guess, but my guess was going to be, it comes from the word carbon, uh, which we know is important. <laughs> <laughs> you guys both sort of like annoyingly almost stumbled on the correct bit, but, but we're like, not quite. But yeah, carbo, uh, which is coal, and fair, which is to carry. So there's a lot of coal beds that were formed in this era. And there was others that are formed in other times, but this was kind of a, because of these m big forests, it's a lot of coal from this time. Uh, so these forests would be composed of lycopsids, which are club mosses, horsetails, and ferns. So in the late Carboniferous, we would have gotten things like pro-gymnosperms and very early seed plants. Yeah, the early seed plants wouldn't really have started to get very dominant until after the the Carboniferous and Devonium, because at the end of that time, all these forests died off. And then in the Permian and the Triassic, conifers would have would have appeared, which are we are much more familiar with. Um, so yeah, the Car Carboniferous was dominated by these early forests, uh, something that we, we probably would be very unfamiliar to the modern eye because they're all different types of trees to what we would classically think of trees. But yeah, they are what we now burn for peat and coal. Um, yeah, so some of, some of the early plants, which very confusingly I found, were called Archaeopteris, which was an early pro-gymnosperm. That's too close. Too close to Archaeopteryx, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it would have, they would have looked like modern uh, gymnosperms, but they would have had spores instead of seeds. So I think kind of the evolution of seeds is something that really helps plants and these trees uh, diversify a lot more because it meant that they didn't rely so much on water and these sort of um, kind of wetter systems. But yeah, that is my early forests, kind of what we would think of as trees beginning. Well, you mentioned earlier that sort of definition of a forest is kind of difficult to pin down. Do you guys know the etymology of the word forest and where that comes from? No. I do not. So I was looking into this and it's actually probably related to a very old word which meant outside. Huh. This idea of what a forest is, is not always a wooded place. Interestingly, another word that came from this is one you might recognise is foreign. 
Aha. Uh-huh. Because they are outside of where you're from. Ah. So, but there are forests in England which don't actually have that many trees. Uh, the reason being that forest didn't used to mean a wood. That's why we used to call them woods. A forest was a place where you could go hunting. And it usually coincided with the fact there'd be lots of trees there because that's where deer and things would live. But it didn't have to. So, yeah, there are places in England where you go to, they're called forests, and you look around and you think, this is a pretty rubbish forest. But probably what it was, it was a hunting ground for some rich noble. Ah, interesting. I did not know that. I was going to guess that it was the thing at the front, the forest thing. Like, it's in the foreground, the forest, it's in the (laughs) fore. It's the in the fore, the forest. I was looking up relating to that. Obviously, we now, we know that forests have changed over time but it wasn't that long ago where forests were a lot more prevalent uh, especially before uh, the agricultural revolution where we start to use more and more land for agriculture which is continuing today which is why you see those these huge reports of deforestation in the amazon because it's being turned into agricultural land but that process has been happening since we discovered ag- agriculture uh, it's just sort of accelerating now because there's more of us so how can we tell what forests used to look like? It's quite a difficult challenge because, like you say, the fossil record is quite patchy. Just because we find certain fossils in one place doesn't mean that that's how the forest was around there. So it's a bit of a challenge. Now, what one set of researchers did is they actually used something else. They used beetle fossils. And they were able to use these beetle fossils to look at how the forests in England have changed over time. These were researchers from Queen's University in Belfast. And what they were sort of saying was that historically, there's sort of a view that the United Kingdom was covered in sort of closed canopy forest, that it was very thick, very dense, very dark forest. And this is how we would imagine historical Britain. But actually, they were able to find out using the fossils something quite different. So, for example, what they would find is certain types of beetles, they'd find fossils at certain times because some would thrive in forests like that. So some species, they found them, it meant they probably was a closed canopy. But like last week, you mentioned dung beetles, very important. If they found dung beetles, these are very unlikely to be in a forest because they need to be uh, in areas where there are large herbivores grazing. And by looking at this sort of makeup over time, they're able to come up with some sort of ideas of what the forest looked like. So what they found is from sort of 10,000 to 6,000 BC, the fossils were mostly sort of open pasture beetles. There are a few forest types and hardly any dung beetles. So this would suggest that they're sort of like quite sparse uh, sort of trees, things like uh, oak, hazel, a mixture of tree density. But around 6,000 BC, there's a change. Beetles become really abundant and the grassland species drop. So what you can tell there is that probably the forest canopy was closing over. So it was becoming that thick, dense forest that everyone thought it was. But in 4000 BC, everything changes. And can you guess what caused that? Us. Yes, it was us. It was farming. So that's when uh, the agricultural revolution reaches these islands. All of a sudden, dung beetles become more abundant, while the other types of beetles decrease. And apparently this is a very abrupt transition. So it appears that, yeah, land was being taken over from farming very, very, very quickly. Cool. That I mean, once again, I'm amazed at what researchers can put together about the past from the strangest and sparest of clues. 
I mean, it is odd to think that they were able to tell what farmers were doing 6,000 years ago because of dung beetles. Yes, that is odd. Thank you, dung beetles. Yeah, yeah, that is really cool research. That is a clever use of indicator species. I like Mm. it. It's about time those beetles were useful because the last time I checked, well, in our la- we had we had a lot of beetle talk in our last. We came together last week for a lot of beetle talk, and um, I have another beetle thing to talk about now, and it's not so great. But it's nice to see some positive beetle use these days. Um, in North America, the for- there are forests in a lot of the Northeast, the Northwest, along the Rockies, and in Can- all throughout Canada, and until you reach the tundra. And one of the biggest concerns of foresters and, and forests themselves in North America right now is the spread of a beetle called the southern pine beetle. Have you guys heard of this one? Yes. I believe so, yeah. Um, this little guy is a nasty little fellow and just really small. It's about the size of the, you know, the tip of a pencil that has an eraser on it, the, tip, the, the eraser of the pencil. But they bore through the bark, the inner bark of pine trees. And most of these forests in higher altitudes and in northern latitudes in North America are pine forests. And it kills the tree because it cuts off the circulation and the flow of nutrients in the trunk. And then the tree, not only does the tree then die, which can cause a problem for forests in general because they're made of trees, but also the trees then stay standing and dry out. And then you can imagine what would happen if a lot of trees died and stood standing and all dried out. And then a fire happened, um, which has been happening in places like Colorado and in Northern California and in Oregon and Washington, um, in part due to this beetle, because uh, these forests are basically standing matches after a certain point. But the interesting thing about this, the beetle is like all beetles, it has a larval stage and the larval stage, it is really sensitive to cold. so. There's, a, I think, a th- I'm not sure what the threshold temperature for the winter is, but often a cold snap in the winter will kill the larva uh, at its northern edge of its range because it's it gets too cold in the winter. In the southern part of the range, it doesn't matter so much, and the trees there actually have developed better defenses to deal with this beetle. But in the northern edge of the range, it's been year after year in the last few dec- in the last couple of decades it's been dying less often because the cold snaps are getting less intense. So it's increasing its northern range rapidly. It's expanding to something like 270,000 square miles uh, in the last five years or so. Um, But, okay, so it sounds pretty awful. And I was doing some research about stop this beetle, and the consensus seems to be stop global, um, which... uh, would be great. Um, but there really doesn't seem to be much one can do to save these forests at the northern end of the range. Wow, that's intense. But, yeah. But cool. But yeah, but it gets, I suppose it's, yeah, it's frustrating as well because it's sort of a problem that we're creating because like you're saying in the, in the ecosystems where the trees are used to the, the, the beetle being there, you know, they're able to kind of have defenses and there's a balance. Whereas, you know, if, if this tree is suddenly getting way more pests or these trees are getting pests, they're just not used to. It's just it kind of knocks off that balance, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of weird to think, again, the I mean, we all understand how interconnected life is. And it's very 
almost counterproductive to see a species as just a species as opposed to part of a biome or an environment. It's weird to think that the spread of a beetle to a new environment could essentially increase the risk of forest fires. Yeah, it is totally weird. She's likely to impact slow-moving animals, things like the more charismatic one like moose or bears. So yeah, this introduction of beetles could lead to a decrease in the number of moose. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it is, um, it's a native actually to the southeast. So it's not really, it's sort of only in recent years expanded into this northern part of the range. But like you said, like something like the moose, which is such an enormous animal, can be impacted by the species, which is three millimeters long. One way, uh, one way of sort of picking out these beetles and the damage that they do when you're in these forests is to look around and remind yourself that you're in an evergreen forest, in a pine forest, and then to see if you can pick out the, the trees that look like they've turned for the winter. These are the trees that have their, their like uh, orange or golden or brown leaves, and they're actually not turned, they're dead, um, but still standing. So often that's a sign of, a sign of beetle damage. I found it interesting you mentioned that idea that you need to remind yourself that you're in an evergreen forest because the part of the world you're talking about is the taiga or the boreal forests which encircle pretty much the entire um, uh, far north in the northern hemisphere till uh, the end of the tree line where the where the sort of very very cold arctic uh, begins but uh it's odd that we would think that unusual, and it's unusual because humans don't often go there. But the taiga is actually the largest biome on Earth. I didn't so there is, yes, yeah, more of that environment than there is any other environment. Like, it's absolutely enormous. To give you an idea of how big that is, so I was looking this up. So 30% of the world is covered in forests. So only 30%, which isn't a lot. Now, 45% of Europe is covered in forests, where you think, oh, good for Europe, they're preserving their forests. But 80% of that is in Russia. Wow. Yeah, so 80% of Europe's forests are in Russia. And a lot of that will be in the taiga in that northern bit. And it's recognisable. Basically, the, the dominant tree there is the spruce. But uh, you also get things like the original Christmas trees. They would grow up there as well. Uh, you get pines, birch, things like that. But yeah, they are sort of evergreen because of the, the nature. Uh, you often associate them with snow. But in fact, it's actually quite a dry environment. There's not a lot of moisture for these trees to gain. It doesn't rain an awful lot. They're, while there might be heavy snowfall, there's not a lot of rain for them to sort of get moisture from. But it's an amazing environment. Uh, like I said, it's the largest biome on Earth. And yeah, if you look at a picture of it, it basically looks like a non-stop forest, only interrupted by the seas that goes all through northern Canada, all through northern Europe, uh, across Russia, even into places like Korea. And then again on, uh, yeah, back to America again. Uh, one of my favorite facts about it is the taiga, which is T-A-I-G-A, which comes from a Russian word. Uh, do you know what you can find in the taiga? Caribou. Yes. Some beetles. Tigers. Oh, I, I was going to say, but I wasn't sure if you were just like setting us up for failure on that one. I would never set you up for failure, Naomi. Yeah, there are tigers in the tiger, specifically the Siberian tiger, the largest tiger uh, there is. And of course, it has to be large because it's a cold environment. So there are sort of quite a lot of big 
scary animals that live up there, like moose. Is that the largest antelope? It's a deer. It's the largest living deer. Um, but so, it's also the most dangerous animal in North America. Other than humans. Other than humans. Yeah, so there's there's moose and uh, grizzly bears also up there, that way, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's full of these sort of big charismatic animals. You can find as well things like Arctic fox, lots of things with Arctic in their name. <laughs> but, yes, yeah, so it's a huge uh, provider of biomass. So all these trees sort of locking carbon. And it's a huge contributor to the uh, reduction of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So the loss of this forest by things like forest fires can be devastating. Although there is an understanding now that perhaps forest fires are an essential part of that biome that there needs to be burning for it to grow again. So quite often in Canada, what they will often do is if a region hasn't had a fire in a while, they'll actually just let it burn until it threatens population. This this has led to some massive fires where they had to actually get involved. But they might look at the area and be like, there was one where it hadn't had a fire in 100 years. So they're like, let's let this burn because we think this actually might be good for the environment. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I have heard of that, that there are there are areas where forest fires are actually an important part of like, the succession and the change but because of like human management and like trying to prevent like trying obviously there are certain fires that are human caused that that need to be stopped but it's when it's when we try and prevent it too much that they get you know like very extreme because there's a lot of dry you know kindling and things but obviously a lot of the the fires that are happening lately are, are very extreme and are not kind of the normal ones that you'd expect um, well, but, I'd heard that from uh, in America, where there was such a successful drive to stop forest fires that it actually increased the density of the forests. So when fires do occur, they're a lot more intense and uh, yeah, a lot hotter. So they're actually more dangerous, even though there's less of them. Topical mm. too, right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but forests are like they actually didn't realize this, but they cover a third of the world's land surface, which is pretty yeah. cool. Something I also wanted to briefly mention is that deforestation, like I said, the forest covers 30% of our planet. And so a lot of people rely on it. You know, it's a really important part of ecosystems. A lot of people rely on it for jobs and food. But we are, you know, getting rid of the forests in, in, in many different ways. So cattle is, is a big factor. Palm oil is a big factor. Timber is another thing that causes deforestation. But in 2019, the tropics lost close to 30 soccer fields worth of trees every single minute. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, so in the Amazon, around 17 percent of the forest has been lost in the last 50 years, um, mostly due to forest conversion for cattle ranching. I knew Brazilians Tough. liked soccer, but oh. <laughs> rough. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's a lot, I suppose, I guess as well, because those forests are so large it seems like a small percentage but it really does have a big impact you know considering how many animals and like different species live there so something that i found really interesting when i was looking at forests for news about forests this week or information about forests was something called the wood wide web which i thought was a very fun and cute name but basically it's how plants and trees communicate with each other so uh, plants have been found so I guess there's this sort of classic idea that plants are very solitary you know and that is sort of a, a very example of you know survival of the fittest the tallest trees get the most light you know they out compete each other but actually they're kind of 
finding a lot of research that that's not necessarily the case, that they found that there's these networks underneath the ground of fungi. Uh, so it's called a mycorrhizal network. So there's these fungi that are attached to the roots of plants and then they link together and they actually exchange nutrients and they communicate. So they send different signals to other plants. And so some plants, so say like hub plants or some, some people call them the mother plants, will give out nutrients um, and and different things to like neighboring seedlings or young plants to kind of help protect them there's other plants that maybe when they're dying they'll like just exchange they're like release all their nutrients out through this network to give them to other people and there, there's actually people who like kind of sabotage or steal from this network so there's orchids that like tap in and steal nutrients from the network there's other plants that sent, use this network to send out signals um they send out like chemicals to to kill other competing plants so it's really interesting but this i think was kind of something that was popularized and kind of given to a general audience by a uh forester and writer um his name is sorry peter woven um he's so he's a german forester and author and he wrote the hidden life of trees what they feel and how they communicate so i think this was something that a lot of people were studying, but I think it was something that he put in a very accessible way and commu to communicate with people. So it, it's been a bestseller in a lot of different countries. This book, I haven't read it myself, but it definitely sounds interesting. I think it's kind of something I'm looking at, but it's really, it's really interesting. I suppose it's not something that I kind of vaguely knew that plants, you know, send signals and communicate with each other, but I, I, I guess I wasn't maybe aware of how intricate a network it is. And I know they do also send some signals in, in the air. So a, a great example or a classic example is the acacia. If a giraffe is browsing on acacia, the acacia will release ethylene gas um, and it will signal to other trees nearby to send lots of tannins to their leaves and tannins will make herbivores even giraffes quite sick or even like, could, could kill them uh, but giraffes have then worked out a way to kind of avoid this so they go again they eat into the into the wind so that the signal will go the the other way or else they'll like walk around they'll go out of kind of they'll walk further to get to the next tree so they'll like miss the signal that the tree is sending so it's really cool um it's i guess another complex way these ecosystems interact i love the idea of trees communicating via fungi in the soil it's like so futuristic sci-fi but happening probably has been happening for longer than humans have been around yeah definitely and yeah i, I remember you mentioning something like that as well where you know they, these plants sending these signals about like things eating them or like pests eating them and kind of to communicate to other things as well. So it's really cool what kind of things can, you know, plants and trees can do. Mm -hmm. what, re what really struck me when you were saying that is you're right that we do think of plants as sort of solitary things, but at the same time, they are most associated with being in huge groups. Like it would be super weird to see a single blade of grass or to see a single tree in a desert. But we do think of them as almost solitary. Hmm. Yeah. True, actually. Yeah, weird. You also reminded me a bit of, do you know, uh, black walnuts? Yes. Yeah. They're one of the trees that release signals in in, in these. Use and they kind of attack other trees. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. They release a poison. I think it's called juggalone. 
or Juglo, or something like that. It's spelt like that, uh, but I don't know how it's said. So they released this poison, and it means nothing can grow near its roots, but there are certain flowers which can, including one that I can't remember the name of, but I do remember it has these beautiful purple flowers. So in some parts of a forest, you can find a small clearing where there's a big black walnut tree, which is surrounded by purple flowers and nothing else. Cool. Just to be to be wary to our listeners, if you search for Juggalo poison, you only will get things about insane clown posse. <laughs> <laughs> Not Juggalo, Juglone. <laughs> That's a nicer search results than uh, Juggalo poison. It's not toxic to humans. Well, we're not plants. No, but some things that plants produce are toxic to us. You're not wrong. Yeah, that's true. In fact, mm-hmm. but that's for another episode. Yes. <laughs> so the last thing that I want to talk about today is the sort of what happens when you leave a forest be for a while. Um, and what ends up happening is you get what's called an old growth forest or a primeval forest, uh, which has a lot of different meanings in different parts of the world. But the sort of general, if you distilled it all down to the most basic, it's basically a forest that hasn't been disturbed in a long time. Uh, so whether by fire or by human activities or any sort of destructive events, it's a forest that's sort of been, it's reached a sort of dynamic equilibrium. So rather than going from a grassland to then the sort of savanna with trees, to then having like bat- scattered trees and deciduous trees, to then finally evergreens. It's sort of this like many different trees of different heights and at different ages. And some of them are very old and some of them are young and you have herbaceous plants and a lot of animal biodiversity. They're really beautiful, these old growth forests, uh, both I think to be in and also from a sort of psychological point of view. They sort of represent like nature undisturbed by human now, these old growth forests, I wanted to bring them up because uh, I wanted to basically, it was sort of my selfish researcher reasons, I wanted to know where they were in the world. And so I, I sort of dove into this list and saw, wow, there's a ton in North America. And I think that has a lot to do with the history of wood use during the time that people have been colonizing the land in Europe versus in North America. Um, but there's also a lot in Africa and Australia. I came into this thinking, wow, the UK has been inhabited for such a long time and for a period of time when wood was very important that I thought there wouldn't be any old growth forests in the UK, but it turns out uh, there may be. Can you guys name any of the old growth forests in the UK? I have, yes. Forest of Dean. Ah, the Forest of Dean, which sounds so King Arthur to me, uh, but also with that sort of weird 90s high school sitcom twist. Uh, It's also Harry Potter. I was just about to say that. I was like, I can't think about it without thinking about Harry Potter. While I am the literary correspondent uh, for the <laughs> podcast in most episodes, I don't know the Forest of Dean from Harry Potter. It's where they hide in book seven, uh, where they sort of set up camp. They run away to the Forest of Dean because Hermione went there with their parents once. It's near Gloucester. It's sort of on the border with Wales, really near Bristol. Uh, you can drive up and it's beautiful to walk around. Cool. Cool. I've only been to one old growth forest and it was one of the more famous ones on the west coast of the u.s uh, it's called muir woods and it has one of the last stands of coast redwood it's a pretty small forest at only about 240 acres of the old growth section um, but it is one of the last stands of these coast redwoods uh, which grow there as you know they're the tallest trees in the world 
it's a pretty cool place and one of the few places where you can see trees like this in the wild. Yeah, I went to the giant sequoias when I was a little. So I think that brings us to the end of our theme this sec. Thank you guys for joining us this week and for listening in. Next week, we are going to be talking about reefs. I hope you can join us then. Um, but that will be goodbye from Nick. Bye. Goodbye from Nick. Bye-bye. And a goodbye from me. Thank you guys for listening. Join us next week. So it's a little, can you say is that a curse word in, in British English? Yes, it means yes. Oh, so I, I can't say that. Oh, no, okay. it's literally someone who partakes in Oh, that's not, okay, that's not what I, that's not what I want.